Welcome to the High Reliability Podcast, presented by Goslin Martin Associates. The High Reliability Podcast is focused solely on the healthcare facility management profession. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Peter Martin, president of Goslin Martin Associates. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Robert Hacker. Robert is the director of facilities, planning, design, and construction at two hospitals out on the West Coast, Community Memorial Hospital and Ojai Valley Community Hospital in Ventura, California. I asked Robert to join us today for a topic called So You Want to Be. As director of facilities, planning, design, and construction, I asked Robert if he might come on just to talk to us about insights into his career evolution into the director role, as well as tips and tricks that he has used throughout the years. I find that it's always interesting to listen to others talk about their career, how they arrived at their career, because we all have different roads we take. We have pitfalls, we have highs. And so it's always good to hear from people. And I thought Robert out on the West Coast as a director would be a great person to speak to. He also has a consulting business on the side. So Robert is uh, well represented. Robert, thanks for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. Excellent. Excellent. So today, as Robert and I tape, it is Monday, June 8th. It was a beautiful weekend out here on the East Coast, finally. But Robert's also the uh, first West Coast guest that we've had on the High Reliability Podcast. So before we jump into Robert's career and So You Want to Be, I ask him to tell us a little bit about the situation at his hospital now relative to COVID-19. As I said, we haven't had a California guest, so I thought it might be insightful to hear from Robert. Robert, tell us a bit about how you've been dealing with it and where your hospital is now roughly three months into the uh, pandemic. Well, the hospitals out here in the entire state of California uh, really didn't bend the curve. The curve never really occurred out here. It was just a very steady, um, continual, um, small amount of people. It's, of course, it's going up now because there's more people out and as society has opened up, but we haven't had an influx like you saw in New York and so forth. So that's what it's been going on out here on the West Coast. So you are, um, did your did your census ever pop relative to COVID, or did you stay relatively even keeled? It stayed pretty even keeled until last week, um, and last week it did go up significantly. And uh, ironically, it was just a couple of weeks after we started to open up society, uh, and people were getting out. We had a holiday; people were out. People were out at the beach. Um, and now all of a sudden we're starting to see more patients, um, than we had ever seen before. And are they, is there a, um, is there a patient demographic that you're seeing or is it across all different age groups and, uh, locations relative to patients? It's pretty much, um, elderly and people who have, uh, underlying health conditions, but at the same time there have been. Um, younger folks uh, just as well. So it's been a little bit across the board, not really specific to only one population, although one population has been a little bit more represented. Interesting. So just 
One last thing relative to COVID-19 before we jump into uh, career discussion. I've talked to a lot of folks over these last couple of months who've worked in hospitals, both in the consulting range and on the director level, and different uh, different professionals have prepared for COVID-19 in a different way. And I guess when I say prepared, they've prepared their hospital for an onslaught that in some cases didn't come, which is fortunate, um, and in some cases, which is occurring now. Is there anything in particular that you did that you prepared your hospital for from either an infrastructure or people perspective to prep for uh, the COVID-19? Well, we did a couple things. Uh, number one, we actually converted and made uh, 26 uh, patient rooms uh, into negative pressure, temporary negative pressure by just putting a fan uh, with a HEPA filter exhausting directly outside the window. Uh, of course, we had to take the windows out and we put um, uh, basically plywood with a hole in it where we could actually connect the duct uh, to exhaust, uh, to make the room negative, just in case we had a lot of people who were on isolation precautions. The other thing that we did is throughout the entire hospital, we opened up all the economizers uh, on the air handlers and forced us to bring in 100% makeup air and exhaust 100% of the air within the building, uh, giving the occupants, both the patients, the staff, um, a, a higher level of security and safety within the building. What was the, when you brought in the 100% makeup air, what, I don't want to say what was the result, but was, how, how did that manifest itself making that change? Uh, the only problem that you have when you do that is, uh, the hospitals that I'm responsible for, um, don't have the ability to completely heat or cool, a hundred percent of the air. Uh, they are looking for, um, from a, energy conservation standpoint, it's designed to be able to recirculate that air. So on extreme days, if it was extremely hot, it's a little bit more difficult to cool it all the way down where we would like it to be. Um, but what I mean by that is it might be about five degrees warmer than where we might want it to be. Uh, it's not uncomfortable. It's still within our acceptable ranges. On the other hand, if it got really, really cold out, mm. I would have a hard time heating it. Again, it's not that I couldn't heat it. It's just that I wouldn't be able to heat it to the level um, that we might want. Does that make sense to you? It does. It does. Did you get any um, complaints or did, did folks notice it, whether it be patients or, or uh, hospital staff? When I originally thought of doing this, I talked to our um, COO. And I explained to him, and he thought it was a good idea, and I explained to him the downside. Uh, and what we did is we went ahead and did it without necessarily telling all the nursing units and so forth what we were doing. Uh, the first week, there was absolutely not one complaint. Nobody even knew. Uh, then we hit a little bit of a, a hot spell, and there were a few people that were complaining, not a lot. I would say less than five that would complain, hey, it's not getting as cold as they would like. Um, but as a whole, once we started to tell people what we were doing and the safety reasons for it uh, and not recirculating in the air, just in case any of these droplets were to get out there, uh, that they wouldn't get uh, recirculated, uh, it made people feel much happier and uh, they felt that we were actually looking out for them. Yeah, I could see why. Less than five complaints. That's 
that's pretty good. <laughs> if you, you'd probably take that often, less than five. So um, let's change gears. Let's talk about careers and so you want to be. Tell us a little bit, Robert, about your career evolution. Where and how did you get started? Well, I started off completely opposite of healthcare. I started off in the military. Um, after the military, I went into the aerospace sector. Um, and then I transitioned from the aerospace sector into healthcare. Uh, it's a strange career path to go from one side um, to, you know, maiming and injuring to now healing. So <laughs> I know I've gone full circle in my career. And I get asked the question all the time, how did I ever transfer um, my aerospace skills into healthcare? And why would I want to go from aerospace to healthcare? I was actually at a, a conference one time. And there was a lot of healthcare folks there. And I was one of the guys who never thought of healthcare as a true industry other than a bunch of nurses and doctors and maybe uh, a couple support staff, um, what we used to call secretaries or administrative staff. Uh, so I never really thought of even facilities or maintaining any of the infrastructure. Uh, so it became very interesting to me. Uh, I started looking into it, talked to uh, some of the colleagues that were there at the conference. Uh, what was the conf What was the conference, Robert? You were at. Uh, I don't remember the. I'm sorry. I should have thought about that. I don't remember the conference. Okay. I remember where it was. It was at the L.A. Convention Center, uh, <laughs> but I don't remember the actual name of that conference. Um, sorry about that. No problem. It's a long time ago. Well, not that long ago. <laughs> It was back when the pterodactyls were flying. Yeah, I didn't want to say it, but uh, you can. So yeah, I, I apologize. I kind of jumped in. So you were you were um, you're at the conference, and then you just started asking some questions about the career path. I was asking really what they do and what is it that they're maintaining within a hospital, um, and I just never thought about it before. Uh, I, I kind of joked with uh, one of my colleagues. Uh, he was saying how many restrooms they had in a hospital. And, you know, coming out of a big aerospace factory, all of our restrooms were centrally located. We didn't have private restrooms uh, or, I mean, there was very few private restrooms where he was talking about how many restrooms he had. Every room had its own restroom. And I was like, wow, you know, <laughs> I never thought of that before. <laughs> That's that's interesting that 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 stuck with you that little uh, that little morsel there. So in the in the transition, um, did you? So you're in aerospace. You go over to healthcare. Did you start at a small hospital? How did you go about selling yourself uh, to prospective employers that you could do the job though you didn't have the specific healthcare experience? Again, I'll go back to when I was talking to some of the, my colleagues at the conference, and then uh, after that, uh, I actually visited a couple of them in their hospitals and kind of walked around and kind of talked about things. Um, I was accustomed to working in clean rooms, and then I thought, oh, an OR is nothing more than a clean room. Uh, how foolish I was. Uh, I, I would say that we would take care of critical equipment much more than we would in a healthcare setting, which kind of threw me off. 
because um, I thought the healthcare setting would be much, much more stringent um, than in a manufacturing environment and an aerospace environment. Um, so what I did is I just kind of learned and how my skills could actually transfer. Um, when you talk about a, you know what you do to keep a clean room clean compared to an OR, you say, okay, there are some similarities that you can draw from one another. When it came to uh, HVAC, it's the same, whether it's in a, a factory setting, um, office building setting, or in a hospital, the well, same things are in place. Uh, plumbing, of course, you have a heck of a lot more restrooms in a hospital setting than you do in a factory, individual restrooms. Um, so there was a lot of skills that actually transfer very easily from one side to the other. You know, you, you hit on um, something that we advise to people who are uh, looking at prospective careers, and, and I think it's really important. It seems like, in a way, you almost conducted your own informational interviewing with people who worked in healthcare facilities to see if it was a fit for you. You did your research on your own, and I think that's always so important. We 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 talk prospective candidates about that. You know, if you're working in um, a factory. Or if you're working in aerospace and you're thinking healthcare, talk to people who are in in healthcare and find out what that career path is like and learn about it and make a solid judgment based on information from the field from people who are working in it. It sounds like that's what you did. That's exactly what I did. Did you find that people were, as you were going about that informational interviewing, did you find that the healthcare people were willing to speak with you and, and they were helpful and how did you approach it with them so that they didn't think you were asking for a job, but you were really asking for information? I think it was um, maybe a little bit different than the way you're phrasing it. Um, although I was trying to find out information from them, they were also trying to find out information from me. Um, you know, I, I, the term, you know, searching for best practices might be uh, overused a little bit, but, I was trying to figure out what they're doing and how they're doing it. And they were asking me some of the same questions. So I didn't necessarily, and I wasn't at that time looking to say, Hey, I want to move into healthcare. I was just intrigued by it. So I, I don't think uh, I came across as one who was necessarily trying to get into the healthcare industry. It, it was a natural curiosity that I had. And they also had a curiosity on the other side on what I was doing in the aerospace world. So both sides were benefiting from these conversations. Yes. You mentioned um, taking care of equipment in the hospital was one of the things, or, or in healthcare, was one of the things that surprised you as you transitioned over from your aerospace career into the healthcare career. What other surprises or what, what else as you transitioned into healthcare as you've gone about it, were there any other surprises or, or things you did not anticipate in healthcare that you saw when you actually started to work into it? Are there one or two that stand out or that you recall? I think the, the biggest thing uh, for me that stood out was that uh, I was looking at the product before uh, and making sure that it was shipping at the right time. Um, when I went into healthcare, the product was actually the patient, which kind of changed my view on things. Uh, and it was just a different perspective. Um, the schedules and the deadlines, um, 
were rampant, trying to make sure that that product was shipped to the customer at the right time. And then all of a sudden, with a patient, it was so fluid. They may be here longer. They may be here shorter. Um, that was probably the biggest thing that uh, stuck in my mind is how fluid healthcare was compared to the aerospace world. Did you find or do you find healthcare to be more rewarding than the aerospace? And I don't mean to denigrate, but is there a difference in, I guess, personal satisfaction and sense of mission that you get? I kind of look at them both the same. Um, they're both industries. They are both uh, have a very s- deliberate and specific product and service that they're providing. Um, I just have gotten, I get a little bit more out of healthcare just because um, there's a little bit more variety. Uh, I joke with people who've asked me this question over and over again. When I was in aerospace, the product never complained. <laughs> That is true. (laughs) That's a big difference. So you have um, two hospitals that you are the director over. What's the size of of each of them in total, Robert? The aggregate size? Uh, 250 beds and then a 25 critical access hospital. Okay. Is the Ojai, Ojai, is that the critical access hospital? Yes, Ojai is the critical access hospital. So what are the, you know, for somebody who's thinking about this career, what are the differences between the 250-bed hospital and the critical access hospital at 25 beds? And I guess not the, you know, not the, um, not the difference in bed size, which is obvious, but as far as management and, and scope is concerned. Well, I'd like to start off by saying we're a health system, so um, I'd like to say that we're the same regardless. Now, there are differences within culture. Um, you know, a 25-bed critical access hospital is much, much more like a, um, a, a close-knit family. Everybody knows everybody because it's, it's smaller and there's fewer people. Um, and the mid-sized hospitals, it, it's still a family, but you might not be able to literally see everybody, you know, in four hours. Uh, and the critical access hospital, I can walk around and see just about everybody before lunch. Mm. So um, it's just a matter of, you know, the size um, limits the ability to have the personal interactions and the relationships um, with uh, the entire population. No, I know... You've also worked at, at larger hospitals. Do you find that at a larger hospital that is only amplified? Um, you know, the inability to have those relationships that you might want to have or to walk around. Are there other differences when you get really high up in size? Really high up in size. That's real good. When you get to, say, a, a hospital that's got 500 plus beds in it? What I see is uh, when you start getting into the really large hospitals, it's just geographically, it's harder to get around uh, and to meet everybody. Uh, and to talk to everybody. So you have to be a little bit more strategic um, on your relationships. And uh, you might only be interfacing with the director level um, personnel uh, and the staff uh, in a thousand bed hospital, where in a 200 bed hospital, uh, I might actually be talking to the frontline nursing staff. Um, 
So it, it's just a matter of um, size and breadth. And it sounds you you must have to adjust your personal style in a bit, going from larger to smaller environments, or vice versa. You have to. It, it's just a natural thing. Although uh, you know, if I come in contact with uh, an EVS technician working in a big hospital, a small hospital, um, I still say hi. I still respect them as a person. Um, it's just I might not be able to spend as much time with all of them that you would when you're in a smaller hospital. Right, right. Harder to build those relationships. You also have um, planning, design, and construction under you as far as accountability is concerned. How did how did that happen? It was just natural throughout my career as I progressed in the facilities uh, arena, um, trying to make sure that I was uh, well-prepared for anything in our facilities industry, in the healthcare facilities industry. Uh, I joined uh, some of the professional peer groups and uh, really uh, took opportunities to learn as much as I could about all aspects of our industry. Do you, um, in the planning design and construction realm, do you have... um architects that you farm out to, do you have that staff, that skill set on your staff, or do you have to outsource and then control the projects w- within your team? Uh, I used to have an architect on staff, but uh, he has left. So uh, now I farm all of my uh, A&E work out. Is there, do you like, as, as director of facilities, planning, design, construction, do you like it all? Do you prefer one side over the other, or do you see them both as integrated? Because without an effective design, you can't run your facility operationally effectively. What's your thoughts on that? Um, it's interesting you bring that up because this is one thing that um, I've really learned much more in the healthcare setting. We look at things uh, sometimes siloed when it comes to the design and construction versus the operations. Um, and what I mean by that is I'll go back to the aerospace. Whenever we would make modifications um, to the production line, we always looked to see what the effect was. And we would come back to it immediately to see, you know, maybe three months later and then a year later, we would come back to see, did the changes actually uh, have the impact that we expected? Uh, sometimes what I see uh, as I go across the country in healthcare, um, the design and construction side of the house will say, okay, here, here's the keys. It's all yours. And then the operation side has to pick it up and kind of make it work. Uh, sometimes it's easier and cheaper from a design and construction side to do things one way, but then operationally that becomes a nightmare. Uh, Great examples, and I know every facilities director out there will jump up and down and say, of course, but access to dampers is is, is always a, an interesting one. The design and construction folks think, oh, it's right there. I gave you an access panel. Yeah, well, I can't get to it. The panel's too small. I've got these uh, electrical conduits. I've got plumbing lines running overhead. Um, and so... You need to have a blend of both sides to make it a, uh, as most effective as possible. 
Yeah, that's a great example. And I mean, I, I agree with you. I've, from my experience, that happened from our experience now working with hospitals across the country. We see that. Why do you think, and this might be an unfair question, but you always have opinions. Why do you think that is more prevalent in healthcare, that siloed? I think it's getting better, but it still exists. Why do you think that might be in healthcare silo as opposed to the you know aerospace, which you previously worked in? Well, I'll go back. Um, uh, I worked at the factory that built the space shuttle main engines. And everything that we did was focused around those engines. And we never lost sight of that day in and day out. We knew when those engines were to be delivered. Um, so everybody was on the same page no matter what. Uh, so if you got in the way or if you impeded that in the least bit, uh, it stood out uh, like a sore thumb. On the other hand, if you did something that was making it easier or faster to be able to produce those engines or cheaper, uh, that stood out in a good way. Uh, I think sometimes we look at what our goals are separately. Uh, the design and construction is typically looking at the cost, the upfront cost. Did I deliver it on time and within that budget versus kind of a life cycle budget uh, view? Uh, but that's also hard for people to understand. Why would I want to spend more money on a product, a, a, a solid surface countertop versus uh, a laminate? Well, a laminate is cheaper up front. You can get it in faster. Uh, a solid surface is going to last me uh, a lot longer. Uh, but sometimes people don't understand they, their priorities are different and they're not all aligned in healthcare. Yep. Yep. You, um, you mentioned, uh, professional societies and I know that you're a proponent of professional societies. I think you're a member of the American college of healthcare executives. I know that you've been involved, um, with ASHI to a great level. What benefit do you receive from those organizations or these organizations? And I guess I asked that too in light, Robert, we know that we're all busier today than you used to be. Um, and that the value of the professional organizations may be seen as diminishing simply due to the fact that you're just so busy doing more, in some cases with less. What value do you get out of these organizations and why do you think they're important? Well, um, I will tell you my perspective um, is, number one, the education element. If I can learn something different or something that I can do uh, that's going to save me time um, or give me a, a different insight that I can make different management decisions from, that's critical to me. Uh, and then secondarily, the relationships within the organizations. Uh, as you said, both with ASHI and the American College of Healthcare Executives, I'm a fellow in both of the organizations. Um, I have utilized both organizations to kind of help me in my career uh, to understand the in-depth uh, aspects. On one side, uh, a lot of times we'll fight and we'll complain uh, in the facilities world, oh, you know what, they would rather buy a new MRI versus replacing a chiller. Uh, and then when I look at it from the other side, they say, okay, well, guess what, we only have X amount of capital dollars and we can spend it in one of two ways. We can either buy that MRI, which could bring us more revenue, or we could actually spend it on a new chiller. Yes, the new chiller might be more um, effective 
uh, and efficient. So our energy consumption might go down. But on the other hand, the value of the additional pictures being taken by an MRI might be more valuable. Sometimes we don't necessarily look at it that way. And sometimes it might not necessarily even be shared with us. Here's the revenue side that we can make. And it might be $100. I'm just throwing it out there. Um, but the savings uh, for your, your new chiller might only be $90. So there can be some decisions that are made um, that might not feel good. It might, not, it might feel that other departments are getting what they want and we're not getting what we want. But uh, we do it in our home life every day. And sometimes we just don't realize the same thing is happening uh, in our day-to-day work. Hmm. You, you sound, as I listen to you speak, you sound like you take a very pragmatic but engaged approach to your, to your career, to your being a director. Is that fair to say? And I say pragmatic only because you're looking at both sides and, you, and you're measuring and you're trying to assess. You're putting yourself in each side of the equation. I believe that is our job to look at it from uh, a bigger picture, not just for our department, but what makes the best choice for the entire organization. Um, Kind of when I was talking about the aerospace, when we would look at um, the product, at the end of the day, we should be looking at that product, which is our patients and what is going to be best for them. Um, And, that's a very difficult question because everybody has a different opinion. Yes, every everybody has an opinion. Um, as a leader, do you do you share that information? Do you share that information with your staff? How do you get, you know how do you go about informing them? Trying to get them to see that bigger picture as well. How do you approach that? I kind of look at myself somewhat of one who's an instructor, uh, a professor. I don't, I don't necessarily like those titles, but I do try to impart the knowledge that I've gained um, to all that I work with um, and say, okay, here's the reason why. Not just, you know, hey, go do X. Uh, you know, it's real easy to say, I need you to check a fire extinguisher every month. And people say, well, I can go and do that task very easily. But then trying to give them the reasons why. Why are we checking it? What are the problems? What has happened in the past that's driven us to want to check them on a monthly basis? Um, because I think if you can teach the person the reason why behind it, it's easier than just teaching them how to do it. I hope that makes sense to you. It does. Yes, it does. And, and you know, I was going to say, I've, I've known you for a bit of time now. And just, you know, what you've just said, you live that as well. I mean, I know that you, you know, you're a, a proponent of staff education, but also, taking your staff to ASHI, trying to, trying to, as you just said, trying to give them the education they need to work more effectively in their job or to grow a career, whatever it happens to be. Is there, um, is there any advice, Robert, that you would give a person um, who seeks to be a director in healthcare facilities management? Maybe right now they're at the manager level or maybe they're at the trades level there they're a plumber or an electrician, what advice would you give people who are seeking to grow their career? Maybe their ultimate is, is to sit in the director's chair. The first thing I would do is tell them to find somebody to be a mentor. And although, again, uh, it's a term that I don't necessarily like, 
maybe a friend, colleague, somebody that you can bounce ideas off of, something that they can also give you some feedback on uh, that you may or may not be able to see. Um, if, if you want to get into the director's role, you know, talk to another director. If you can't do it at your own facility, talk to somebody at a different facility and say, hey, can I understand what you do? Can I, can I shadow you for a day? Uh, or, or ask them, you know, hey, can we go out, um, you know, for dinner? Or can we go out at lunch one day? And can you explain to me, you know, what are the things and how do you make your decisions? You know, uh, where do you place your 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 labor and how do you prioritize your tasks? Uh, I think that's probably most important is, is to get somebody who that you can trust, that you can ask questions and that they're going to give you honest feedback to say, hey, this doesn't work. Or, you know, uh, what do you do when? Uh, you know, your main line, your main water line ruptures to your hospital. What do you do? Like, well, you know, that's a little bit different. And uh, if you're not prepared for it oh, and you haven't thought about these things, um, then you're in, in a crisis mode at that point in time. So it, it's good to kind of talk about it ahead of time. So you have somewhat of a game plan uh, for different catastrophes that we will face. Not if, but we will face yeah. them. Yeah. Definitely true. You will. Is there, um, and just, I'm speaking with Robert Hacker. Robert's the Director of Facilities Planning, Design, Construction in Ventura, California. Um, Robert also owns a consulting firm or is a consultant. Robert, what's the consulting firm? I'm sorry, you broke up on me, Peter. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just giving your your title and all, but you also said you do a little bit of consulting on this, on the side. What's your, um, what's your consulting firm? It's believe it or not, it's called hacker innovative solutions. Huh, it's an easy one to remember, right? Hacker innovative solutions. Well, uh, well titled. And I, I imagine it's healthcare based. It is not just healthcare focused, but, um, the majority of my work is in healthcare, but, um, it is across the board. Excellent. Well, so if you want to learn more, Hacker Innovative Solutions. One last question for Robert Hacker uh, this morning. Robert, what would you avoid doing in the director role? And what would you avoid doing? That's a little sloppily worded. But what what trait or what personality or, or what have you seen that definitely does not work in the director role for long-term success, that turns people away or just is not an indicator of success? Interesting question. Um, I guess probably one of the things that I would say um, just to be aware of is people change in healthcare. Um, administrations change. You get a new CEO, a new COO, uh, and their perspectives and their priorities change. And if you're um, in alignment with the old regime and a new regime comes in, uh, sometimes that can cause conflict. Um, again, I go back to uh, the difference between aerospace and uh, healthcare. Uh, you know, in the manufacturing world, it's pretty set. You know exactly what your priorities are day in, day out, and they don't change no matter who is in those roles. Uh, it might be a different focus on what product line you're going for in the future, but the day-to-day -day stuff is all the same. Healthcare seems to change a little bit. Sometimes it's more, you know, um, how pretty the building looks. 
do you do we have the latest and latest and greatest uh, technology uh, versus sometimes being the most efficient? Um, you know, sometimes you'll see some organizations they'll uh, really want to be um, a green organization, and then the new CEO will come in and say, you know what, I really don't care so much about being green. I want to be the best, or I want uh, uh, a little bit different priority. So that's probably the biggest pitfall that I would say is just be, to be aware um, of different priorities and um, direction. You know, that's that's insightful. We um, we just launched our Career Hub website off of the Goslin Martin Associates main page, and that's one of the articles in there. And, and you're right. I think that no matter where you are in your career, it's always good to take a step back and see if your values align with the organization. Because we're so busy on a day-to-day basis, a year-to-year basis, that our organizational values change, yet we remain constant, or vice versa. Our values change and the organization remains constant. And you need to reassess that because you are out of alignment. And if you're out of alignment over time, maybe it means you move on to an organization that more reflects or you adjust your style. So that uh, with that said, Robert, anything else we didn't cover that you think is important for a, a director or a, a person trying to go up the ladder. Anything for them to know. So you want to be a director. Anything else they should know? It's pretty open-ended, putting a lot of pressure on you. Well, one thing I would say is um, just because you want to move up or to get into a director-level position, um, sometimes the grass is not always greener. Um, There's other things that uh, you might not see. Uh, Late nights, um, getting phone calls at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, that you might not see and you might not want to have that, um, that responsibility. Um, I can tell you, I I remember, uh, in my career, I was out having dinner with my wife one time and I got a call, um, saying, Oh, that, um, two of my, uh, technicians were working on a chiller and, um, they accidentally tapped into a 4160 line and, um, (laughs) had a little bit of an injury and uh, my wife still jokes with me to, to this day about it. It, um, She heard me ask on the phone. um, I I was asking uh, the hospital because they said they were taking them to the emergency room. I just asked, are they still alive? And my wife's (laughs) looking at me across the table going, (laughs) um, asked me afterward. She goes, why did you ask that question? I said, because I wanted to find out when I leave here, because we were going to, I was going to leave dinner and go to the hospital. I told her, I said, I wasn't sure if I was going to be there for a few hours or if I was going to be there for the next day. Yeah. And she goes, oh, okay, now I understand. Yes. Yeah, not the question you always want to hear. That reminds me, in, in I just read it recently from the Reader's Digest, 1965, I think uh, Dwight Eisenhower, president, former president and general, wrote an article for them uh, called it's okay to be number two. And it talks just about what you were saying there. You know, not everybody wants to be number one and being number two and doing it well, that's okay too. Um, because those transitions can be difficult to make and maybe you don't want it. And you just mentioned a, a reality of this role. You're on call. You're the, you're the director. So you're that first call. 
Robert, thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Uh, have a great day. Thanks for joining the High Reliability Podcast. Thank you very much. This is Peter Martin. Thank you for your time, and we'll talk soon. Have a great day.